This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Meet My Shadow. And the author is Luke Tugas. And Luke joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Luke. Hello. Good to have you with us now. I'm going to read a few things that you have written about your book, Meet My Shadow. You say this... I lived a lie for eight years. No one knew until I asked for help. This book is my confession on how I managed to drink nightly for years without anyone's knowledge. Through my format, I bring you with me every step of the way. And you also say, who does this book appeal to? I would say 14 and up. You say, I believe it can be used as a prevention for younger generations. I believe it can be used for those affected by alcoholism directly or indirectly. Luke, how old are you right now? 25. 25. So when did you start drinking? Um, well, I noticed that I started becoming, it became a, a pattern with around 15. 15. Now, when you say a pattern, what do you mean by a pattern? As in, it was happening on a weekly basis instead of just, one every few months. Okay. And then at 13, I, I tasted alcohol at 13, and then at 15, it kind of became more regular. All right. Um, why would you say at that young age it became so regular? Uh, it was a uh, relief pain. Uh, it took away memories. Okay. Thoughts. And it just kind of helped me sleep. I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. I didn't know if it was bad. Didn't know all that stuff. Right. Your friends were doing it, so you, it was okay, right? Yeah, my friend. We would do it once in a while together, but I started drinking alone at fifteen. Oh. I would, I would find some uh, hard, hard liquor samples around the house, and then I'd just go in my room and drink that. And so at that time of, of your life, of course, you're not thinking at all that uh, you're using alcohol as a, a crutch, as a, as treatment for your pain, right? No, not at all. It, all you know, yeah, all you know, you just feel better. Exactly. At least you think you feel better, right? Yeah, for sure. So when when did you become aware that? you were, I guess, lack of a better way to say it, that you were an alcoholic. When did you become aware of that fact? Uh, I'd say about 18, 19, when I got to university, um, I started studying psychology, and I'd be reading the books, and after a while I started realizing that I was already statistic. Sorry, I can't say that. Yeah, statistic. You're already a, a category, right? You fit right in. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I would be reading stories as I was drinking and go, okay, um, there's definitely something wrong here. And then I soon found out that it was alcohol. Because as you read that, you went, oh, my goodness, that's me. Yeah. So when you realized this, what did you do? What what was the, uh, I mean, did you decide that you were going to stop at that moment in time? Uh, that's when I started with uh, self-help attempts to get uh, quit. But um, none of them worked. I, try, I At this time, I started seeing a psychologist um, where I just kind of paid to lie. Because I, when I finally told him... It's hard for him to understand, and then I soon left after that. And there were just a bunch of other ways I tried to quit. I tried meditation, I tried books, finding a girlfriend, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But nothing worked. Nope, not until I uh, I caved and I decided to go to AA. 
Tell us about the first experience. It's your introduction in your book, but tell us about going to AA for the first time. If you can remember all those feelings and everything that was racing through your mind. Um, I felt defeated. Uh, just knowing that, just walking into the room, seeing all the people there, and I was the youngest by a good 20 years, and it just, I felt lost, didn't know what I was doing. I did not feel good about it, in the least, because I didn't want to quit at this point. So I knew that it had to be done. It was a pretty tough feeling, tough pill to swallow. But after a while, after a few meetings, and getting uh, accustomed to it, it, it was starting to feel pretty good. So after that first meeting and you at all didn't feel like you should be there or you didn't fit in or you you know, you know didn't relate to these people, what brought you back to the second meeting? Um, well, when I first got sober, uh, I went to the meeting, and then I only went to the four after that for about a month, and then I had a slip. So it that, the first time, I don't really count it, just because it never really worked on me. I, I never accepted step one. So you were in denial the whole time, as probably they would say, right? Yes, absolutely. So I, I never really accepted it that I had a problem until I went back out and had that slip. And then when I had that slip, I said, okay, well, there's really no way out of this now. So after that, I went, after a couple of weeks of drinking, I went back, and I went to 35 meetings in 35 days, and that's kind of when I just started going with it and realizing that it's okay, and I'm better off uh, in AA, and I started enjoying it. 35 meetings in 35 days, uh, these people became probably uh, like family. Yes, uh they would do anything to make sure I would stay sober and they didn't even know my last name so just that fact right there meant a lot to me and yeah it was, I learned a lot from them they, they told stories of how they got to where they were and it really helped put my life in perspective so that really the AA meeting is really people sitting in a, in a group just telling their own uh, latest uh, life story I guess right They're, the good are, the good and the bad yeah in a sense uh, we always have topics of the day and uh, usually we'll, the, the topics bring out a drinking past and we start talking about that and then just kind of how we hit that downward spiral and then how we got back back up how did you overcome any kinds of fears or anxiousness about really sharing with these people who were really strangers at first? Uh, it took a while. Um, they would ask me to speak. I wouldn't speak for a bit. But after time and just listening to all their stories and seeing how open they were and how comfortable they were talking about their own problems, like and they could laugh at their problems. And for me, that was a big thing because... At this point, I was just such a wreck, and I thought I was pretty ashamed. I still didn't tell anyone about my drinking. I was going to meetings in secret, and uh, just to see these people be able to laugh at their issues was pretty huge for me, and with time, I was able to just open up. So who was the first person, a friend or family, that you told you were going to AA? Um, well, the first person I'd say would actually be my aunt. She was in town from Hong Kong visiting my mom, but my mom was out of town when she came in, so but it's kind of confusing. But what happened was my aunt got in, and then my mom was coming in town the next day. So the night before my mom got in, I sat my aunt down, and I told her about what was going on. It was hard for her to believe me, but she understood. And she, uh, when my mom got home, we sat her down, and then... I told them, and they said, are you ready for AA? And that's kind of how it started. How did you hide this from family and friends? Why was it such a surprise to them? Um, it started, be once I noticed that I had a problem, I was pretty embarrassed. And it started becoming a priority of mine to keep it a secret. As, as important it was for me to drink, it was just important for me to keep it a secret. So I... It just 
was really important to me that my family know just because I knew if they found out I'd be a burden on their lives because I wasn't ready to quit drinking. So I'd just be that alcoholic who needs help and is not willing to get help. So then I'd become that burden. So I figured uh, if I was going to ruin myself, I'd just do it on my own. When you told your aunt and your mother, did it uh, did it help? How, how, what was the feeling that you had after confessing that? Uh, pretty much told myself is that you just told two of the more important people in your life, so you can't give up this time, and you kind of have to get sober, which didn't actually happen at first because of that slip, but it, it was the, that foundation that to start getting sober was you go to one meeting in AAA and uh, you go try to drink again it's going to be pretty tough to not think about what you've done to actually say to if you don't think you have a problem go out with what you've heard in AA in the back of your mind and have one drink and see if you're not an alcoholic so the key, it sounds to me, and what you're saying is to take that first step. Even though it may be hard, it may be embarrassing, you may feel all kinds of guilt and shame and all the above, but there's hope if you'll take that first step and go to that first meeting. Absolutely. It's all, it's all about pushing yourself to take that first step. I believe the hardest part for me throughout everything that I've gone through in the last 10 years was that first step to say, okay, I have a problem, that's going to AA. Now, in your uh, answers to our questionnaire, you say that the bathroom floor, there's a section called the bathroom floor. Um, I'm, I'm picturing you on the bathroom floor is what <laughs> passed out, I guess. is that? Tell us about the bathroom floor. Oh, that was kind of the peak of... Uh, the hangovers, I would say. Okay. Um, for a while there, I'd wake up and I'd be so sick and just weak that uh, I'd go throw up, and then I'd just lie there on the bathroom floor staring at the tiles for hours. Wow. My goodness. And sometimes you would wake up, and that's where you'd wake up, on the bathroom floor? Uh, no, I would wake up on the floor a few times, but not too often in the bathroom. Okay. Luckily. But you you got to know the bathroom floor uh, very well, I guess, huh? You were yeah, it kind of became a spot. Yeah, your place. Oh my yeah. goodness! Now, what's uh, what's about this ex girlfriend? Now, this ex girlfriend did she play a part in helping you, or was she uh, a character that was uh, really not helping at all, but maybe encouraging your drunkenness? No, she definitely uh, helped me see who I became. Um, she's mentioned in the book more just to show what could happen to a relationship with alcohol. Mm. Um, she never knew, so she really didn't play a part in me increasing my intake. But mm-hmm. um, as time went on, I started becoming a worse person each day, and uh, she really helped show me that because I'd have to look myself in the mirror after we'd have a fight and whatnot. And then when she finally broke up with me, I was like, okay, if you lost that girl, you're, you're really messed up because, yeah, she she fell for me and I fell for her, and I didn't really see there was a chance of losing her, but then when uh, alcohol takes over your life, it's kind of hard to keep a relationship. So I just wanted to show that. The title of the book, Meet My Shadow, Luke writes three words that best describe his story. He says, disturbing, honest, insightful, and the characters, real people with real emotions. And you say the fun part, Luke, writing this, was that you know that you're not that person anymore. Good feeling, yes. So... Uh, as some would say, you're 25, you're a recovering alcoholic. Uh, do you, do they tell you you'll always be an alcoholic, so you have to be on guard the whole time? Uh, yes. Um, there's really no way, there's no cure, which I'm quite okay with, because I have a better life without alcohol, so I'm not really desperate to find an answer of how I can drink again without having a problem. 
Um, so yeah, alcohol for life. I'm pretty okay with that. And you have a future now. You didn't have one yeah. for a long time. No, uh, I kind of had a fake one in a sense because I was going to school, but at the same time, I didn't see a life past 25, so I didn't really, there was definitely no future there. So now you're back in college and you have hope for the future. Yes, I do. Well, good for you, Luke. So good to have you on this show. I know that many young people especially will benefit greatly for you sharing your story, which is a hard thing to share. Obviously, there's a lot of things that you wish you didn't have to talk about. We salute you, Luke. Thank you. Luke, tell us how to get your book. Uh, You can purchase it at uh, Amazon.com or Chapters Indigo or iUniverse.com. I'm starting to get it into the bookstores around me locally, but in the United States, it's just online right now. Very good. Very good. Well, thanks again for being with us. All right. Thank you very much. That was Luke Tugas. He is the author of his book, Meet My Shadow. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com your story are you living it well you could be it's what's your story with hillary bilbrey friday mornings at 10 eastern 9 a.m central on toginet.com her passion is helping others discover create and live their personal brands yep you heard me you have a brand no different than coke pepsi or nike you are a walking talking living breathing brand you're not a logo you're not a tagline the choices you make become the path you take this is your brand Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House. And the author is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps retired. And we welcome Bob now to iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob. Hello, Steve, and thanks for having me on. Well, it's a thrill to have you here, and this is a a startling inside look at 24 hours following the attack on the World Trade Centers. I'm going to read a couple things that you have written. First of all, though, I I want everyone to understand that the National Security Council has reviewed the contents of this book for the purpose of safeguarding our country's classified information and has approved it for publication. That's important that everyone understands that you have written this with complete approval of the government. Yes. All right. You say this, the day America changed forever and how I directly supported the vice president, national security advisor, and national command authority as the attack on America was in progress. 
Someone else has written this about you. 24 hours inside the president's bunker is the story of Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darlene and his account of what took place at the top of the United States chain of command on September 11, 2001, as the U.S. government struggled to respond to the sudden terrorist strike launched against our nation. Well, this is very dramatic and... Just a lot of answers to a lot of questions, Bob. Uh, what prompted you to uh, write the book, which I'm sure was something that you can never forget and probably have dreamt about a lot? You know, when the, when this first happened, I was on, it was 2001, obviously, I was on active duty. And, you know, an active duty Marine Corps officer, you know, it's very difficult to actually get in there and write something and get it all the way through the chain of command. And, uh, it just would have taken forever with so many people wanting to read it and get involved in it. So I waited till I was fully retired, and my purpose for writing this book was to get the history correct. I wanted to have a full, accurate account, and I wanted to share it with everyone, the American public, of the crisis leadership decisions that were made that day on behalf of all Americans. Some of those were gut-wrenching decisions. They were based on unfiltered, real-time information, and I think it's just so important that the American public have it and understand the, the, you know, the level of intensity and decision-making that occurs that day. So you were at the President's Emergency Operations Center, and where is that located? Yeah, that's beneath the White House. The exact location, obviously, is classified. It is the Emergency Operation. It's a hardened Emergency Operations Center, you know, designed for the president and his top advisors in the case of, you know, uh, some, some catastrophic event that occurs uh, in, in and around Washington. And how did you end up inside this command center? I was a, a Marine helicopter pilot. I was part of the Marine Helicopter Squadron 1. I was flying as a co-pilot for President Clinton for a few years, and I was a pilot command for Vice President Gore. When inside the White House military office, there's also a senior aviator that needs to be a liaison with the president's staff. And when our liaison officer moved on to his next assignment, there was a vacancy there. The commanding officer asked me to fill that vacancy, and then I was working in the Eisenhower building, which is adjacent to the West Wing. And I was a subject matter expert on helicopter operations for the president's staff. The primary role of that job is to do logistics. As the president travels worldwide, he never goes anywhere without secure telephones, his Secret Service hard cars and limousines, and of course his Marine helicopters. We move all that equipment out of Andrews Air Force Base to locations worldwide three or four days prior to him arriving on Air Force One, fully exercise and rehearse, so when he gets there to conduct his political agenda, we are there ready to support him. My primary job was to make sure that equipment was placed in time and returned immediately after his departure on Air Force One. On 9-11-2001, I had uh, arranged and coordinated and planned his mission to Florida, Sarasota, Florida. That day I was anticipating him coming back on Air Force One and then, you know, retrograding is a term we use to get all the equipment back out of Florida, back up to Andrews. Well, after the Pentagon was struck, we, we all watched CNN, we saw the towers were struck. Soon after the Pentagon was struck, it was obvious to us all in the airlift operations department there that our president would not be returning to Washington, but would be, in fact, going to some other undisclosed location. Wherever he was going to go, obviously there was no presidential logistics package waiting for him. I was then ordered down to the President's Emergency Operations Center with logistics on my mind. And as soon as I got through the big door and the big door closed, uh, I was immediately um, summoned to put that down for the moment and help answer the phones that were obviously ringing off the hook from information coming down or other people seeking information, and that's where the story picks up. So what were you feeling at that moment in time? Well, like everybody else, uh, it was an unbelievable sight uh, just watching the news up there in New York, and at the time we were thinking that we needed to get FEMA and first responders and all that equipment up to uh, help the police, fire, port authority, and hospital members up there in New York. When uh, when the Pentagon was struck, we realized that we had this terrorist attack that was not 
only in New York, but going on in Washington. So I'm thinking, hey, our country's under attack. My role is to support the president. I'm not about to evacuate the White House when everybody else is leaving. I'm going down there to do my job, and my job at the time was logistics. And when I got down there and the phones were ringing and the military aide told me to answer the phones, the first phone call I got, um, Steve, was from the Situation Room, which is the very popular Situation Room. It's located in the West Wing. All information goes into the Situation Room, but because Washington was under attack, uh, the information now was being sent downstairs into the PIOC, and I was being fed real-time information for what was going on outside. Who became the decision-maker on that fatal day? My first phone call was, this is a situation room. We have a hijacked plane 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, inbound Washington, D.C. And my, my response was, okay, you're going to have to hold on. I turned to find the military aide for the vice president who was in the room, and lo and behold, there was the vice president himself standing a foot away from me going, Major, what do you got? So I started feeding Mr. Vice President, 16 miles south of Pittsburgh, inbound Washington, D.C., we have another hijacked plane. He turned to the speaker phones, and obviously the room was filling up with staffers, and sec, uh, the national security advisor was there, and Lynn Cheney, and, and Secretary Mineta. Everybody's into, the, into my corner of the room. The speaker boxes on the wall were chiming to life, and the first person he spoke to was this gentleman named Rick from the FAA Command Center, saying, Rick, can you confirm that we have a hijacked plane south of Pittsburgh inbound Washington, D.C.? They came back a few minutes later, Mr. Vice President, it's not squawking the transponder code, it's well off course, that's a hijacked plane. So now the Vice President um, really amazed all of us. We anticipated him trying to ask more questions, how far away, how fast it's going, where do you think it's headed, and instead he went right into what he knows from his previous experiences and all the jobs he had as Chief of Staff and Secretary of Defense and Vice President to say, um, to the Pentagon, I want two F-15s out of Otis Air National Guard Base. Let me know when they're airborne. Stand by to shoot this plane down. So you heard the Pentagon then roger up. Um, we're scrambling F-15s. They're supersonic over Long Island. They're five minutes out from the target. They want to be confirmed weapons free to engage. And he said, of course, they're weapons free to engage. Within a few minutes, we heard aircraft down, aircraft down, 68 miles south of Pittsburgh. And the vice president, the room, as you can imagine, Steve, was sucked out of the room. It was dead silent. We're all eyes on the vice president, who just uh, did the ultimate uh, leadership, crisis leadership decision to stop this aircraft full of terrorists from reaching its target uh, in Washington, D.C. He turned towards me, walked right over, and said, for the congressional inquiry, state your full name. From Robert Joseph Darling to the vice president, to the National Military Command Center in the Pentagon, we just shot that plane down. I really need to talk to the president. Wow. Everyone feeling that a lot of innocent civilians, American citizens, had just been killed with this decision by the vice president. Well, I, I think that's the way we initially felt, was the Air Force had taken lethal action against this commercial airliner. But the, really, the, the truth of the matter was, the moment those terrorists took control of that aircraft, it was no longer a commercial airliner. It was a 150-ton Tomahawk cruise missile heading for a target. Uh, it was not intending to land. It was not intending to divert. It didn't have any demands other than crash into its predetermined target somewhere in Washington, D.C. And, and really, we believe that was going to be the, the state, you know, our capital, national capital. And the vice president did... Uh, he was so far ahead of the rest of us as far as seeing it for what, unfortunately, it really was. And the good news is, and I want to make this perfectly clear to the, to the listeners, that a few minutes later, within really two minutes later, all the radios came to life, that, in fact, the F-15s never fired. The F-15s never fired. The aircraft, Flight 93, was on the ground when they got there. It was the passengers who refused to let the terrorists win, they united themselves, they stormed the cockpit, they tried to take back their aircraft, and they themselves thwarted the attempts of these terrorists to reach their target in Washington, D.C. We, we truly have a plane full of heroes and, and not a plane full of victims. Uh, that's where the credit and, really lies. And you believe a hero in Vice President Cheney that day as well? Well, we needed a hero. We needed someone to take charge. As you know, the, the National Command Authority is the ultimate 
legal authority to order our military in the action. And, and on that particular day, President Bush was really en route to Air Force One to try to get non-Air Force One, to get airborne on Air Force One. The Secretary of Defense was j- just suffered an impact on, on the Pentagon. He was outside, uh, you know, assessing the damage. And we needed someone like Vice President Cheney to get the military in motion, to not sit back and let these terrorists go four out of four uh, on their targets, but instead to do what needed to be done, and he was the perfect guy. He was the, the, the crisis leader of the day who made that happen. Well, also, your book covers the near killing of a medical evacuation helicopter as it was headed toward the White House. We don't have time for those details, as well as uh, you took a call from res- uh, Russian President Putin. I sure did. I sure did. And if you want me just to, to share that with you, we Please. just the president was... The president was on the line, and we had just—he just recommended we move our strategic nuclear forces to a higher state of readiness in an attempt to get all the military back to work worldwide. It was the quickest way to do a recall, if you will. And we went from uh, DEFCON four to DEFCON three. We were standing by DEFCON two. It went to the Pentagon by executive order of the president, out to Cheyenne Mountain, and then from Cheyenne Mountain out to the four-star combatant commanders. And then you can hear them roger up that the United States is now moving from DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. We're standing by 2. And with a few minutes, uh, the Russian president had called in. His phone call was patched down. I answered the phone. They said, I have Russian President Vladimir Putin on the line. Will you take the call? And obviously, I was um, saying, well, you're going to have to hold on just one second. And I turned, seeking the vice president, yelled out, Mr. Vice President, I have President Putin on the phone. Will you take the call? He sent Dr. Rice over. She grabbed it through an interpreter. She just very plain language, thanked him for his call, told him our president was in motion. We don't know the size and scope of the attack, but thank you for standing down your nuclear forces. So that obviously caught all of our attention there, and we later learned, just quickly learned, that whenever we uh, heighten our readiness, nuclear posture, Russia does the same thing. It's part of an agreement we have, and they decided that day based on the events that were taking place in our country, not to match the heightened readiness condition. They stood down, so there was no confusion between the two nuclear superpowers what was going on. And that evening, you saw the president? The president came back uh, about 6 o'clock p.m. That evening, he was met on the lawn by Dr. Rice. He quickly came in. He came down to the PIOC, and he's on the executive side of the PIOC. And if you're a cabinet member and you were able to get there before him, you were in. If not, you were out. And literally, uh, he's never been tested. All eyes were on him. President Bush walked in. He sat down. Right across the table from him was Vice President Cheney, and they started talking. So the president was just silent, and everybody was giving him the data dump. If you had something to say from your cabinet or from your area of responsibility, say it. If not, just uh, you know, sit quietly. As it came all the way around to the table, President Bush looks up and says, FEMA, where are you at? And it was Joe Alba. He goes, I want you on the next plane out of here up to New York. Bring your checkbook. I heard it's a mess up there. Transportation, where are you? Here, Mr. President, said Secretary Mineta. He goes, I want planes, trains, and automobiles up and operating by noon tomorrow. When you figure it out, you let me know. I want to see my national security team upstairs in five minutes. The rest of you, thanks for coming. The president had, had got his intelligence. He got a second daily briefing book. He knew that we were attacked by terrorists. He knew what terrorists, he knew what he wanted to have done. He was preparing the country for war. The rest of us at that time had just had to simply catch up to him. And out the door he goes, national security team upstairs, and everyone went back to trying to get the cabinet home and doing you know, what we were, what we were challenged to do that day. The title of the book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House. This is the personal account of the unprecedented actions taken to defend America. The author is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, U.S. Marine Corps, retired. Bob, tell us how to get your book. The book is available on Amazon.com right now, and it's also available through the iUniverse bookstore. Uh, soon, soon, hopefully, it'll be in the brick and, brick and mortars, but I need your listeners to go out there and demand they carry it. But uh, through the Internet right now, in those two locations, the book is ready to be purchased. Sounds like an upcoming movie to me. Well, thank you very much, Steve. <laughs> I enjoyed being on today. Well, appreciate you, Bob. Thanks so much. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Darling, his book, 24 Hours Inside the President's Bunker, 9-11-2001, The White House.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Fighting the Devil, a true story of consuming passion, deadly poison, and murder. And the author is Jeannie Walker, and Jeannie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jeannie. Hello, Steve. Nice talking to you. First of all, I want to emphasize this is a true story about murder that you have researched for 20 years. You know more about this case than anyone else. And you have finally published this book to really bring about justice and also for the sake of the family. Uh, You were married to Jerry Sternadel, and after you two split up, uh, he remarried, and then he was poisoned and eventually died. There was a murder case, and... Justice hasn't been fully fully uh, served yet, has it? Uh, no, it hasn't. It sure hasn't. Still after one of the, one of the suspects. Let me read what you have written. Uh, there was a time when millionaire rancher Jerry Sternadol gave all the orders. No one dared to tell him times were changing. When he discovered in May of 1990 that his wife Luann and his bookkeeper Debbie Baker had stolen thousands of dollars from him, he demanded the money back by Memorial Day, threatening to have them arrested for embezzlement if they did not. He also told his wife he was going to divorce her. And then they had some lunch together. Tell us about that. Well, he usually had lunch uh, with his wife and bookkeeper. That's just uh, the way he did. Uh, that way he didn't waste time uh, with work, so they always had lunch out at the office. So on this one particular day, uh, they went to the bookkeeper and the wife went to town and brought back some taco salad. And he sat down to eat with his wife and the bookkeeper, and after he ate his taco salad, he got deathly ill. Uh, and he, he was the only one that got sick, so uh, he wound up with severe nausea and stomach cramps and diarrhea and vomiting, and he was sick all afternoon, and he thought that he got food poisoning, but he thought it was awful funny that he was the only one that got sick, but all of them ate the same thing. He thought they all ate the same thing. And the doctors were just mystified by all of this. They they were mystified. When he went into the hospital the first time, uh, they thought he had food poisoning. The, the, the doctors thought he had food poisoning. He was in there a few days and got better and went, went back home. And as soon as he got back home, uh, a day later, uh, he was back in the hospital, deathly ill again, with the same symptoms. 
So this time they started saying, well, this can't be food poisoning again. So then they started thinking, well, there's some kind of virus or something. So he was in the hospital the second time, and he started improving again. And then he got out of the hospital and was out of the hospital one day, and then he started getting deathly ill again and wound back up in the hospital. Uh, so this time they're, they, don't know, they don't know what's the matter with him because uh, the uh, arsenic mimics all kind of natural diseases and illnesses. So uh, who thinks that when you're getting sick you're being poisoned? So nobody really ever, ever thought that he was being poisoned until they started doing toxicology tests in the hospital and saw they found arsenic arsenic poison. They said told him he was being poisoned with arsenic and wanted to know uh, how did he come to be sick with arsenic. Well, then he knew that his wife and bookkeeper were trying to kill him because he demanded the money back. That's what they... They started feeding him poison instead of giving him the money back so to get rid of him so they wouldn't have to give the money back and he wouldn't be able to divorce her and she would be out on the street with nothing. So So when he found out about arsenic poison, he tried to get out of the hospital because uh, he started telling everybody that they stole money and uh, now they're trying to kill him. And so uh, his wife said that he's hallucinating from all the drugs and stuff you're giving him. So nobody they, believed him at all? Nobody believed him, no. But, you know, nobody believed that uh, uh, he, he was telling them, uh, they fed me stuff, they're poisoning me, they're killing me, they're trying to kill me. They stole money from me, they stole $35,000 from me, and now they're trying to kill me. And, and she was saying, he's hallucinating, he don't know what he's doing, it's all those drugs you're giving him. And he don't know what he's saying or what he's doing. So he tried to get out of the hospital. And when he tried to get out of the hospital, well, uh, they called the wife and said, he's trying to get out of the hospital. And she said, well, strap him down because he can't leave the hospital. He's too sick. So then they strapped him down in the hospital, strapped his hands and his feet down to the hospital bed. He stayed strapped down to the hospital bed until he died. And while he was in the hospital, the arsenic levels kept going up. So they how were they, how were they feeding him arsenic all this time? They were feeding him. He got to where he wouldn't eat anything that they fixed. So then they started putting it in his drink. So they would bring him. Uh, they would bring him cokes and seven up to the hospital. And after he finally realized that he's been uh, poisoned, he wouldn't drink or any, eat anything. But by that time, he already had. 4,895 micrograms of arsenic in his system, but he was already dying. So it was already too late when he even realized it, but he was still trying to get out of the hospital to save his life. So when did everything change? When did Luann and Debbie become the suspects? Well, they were the suspects to start with because uh, you can't uh, how uh, when a person is poisoned to death, it's usually someone in the family that has access to the food and the drink that they're giving that person. So they were the obvious suspect. And then when we found out a teenager had visited the ranch and he accidentally drank some, some cranberry juice that was in the refrigerator at the, refri- in the, at the ranch, and he became deathly ill after drinking the cranberry juice. Well, then uh, after we learned about the kid... Well, then we had him to go uh, do tests, and he wound up with 278 micrograms of arsenic in his system. So then we knew how they were doing, giving him the arsenic, Jerry Sterndale the arsenic, with the, the drink, and it was in the cranberry juice. So then, then uh, we found the, the cranberry juice bottle and had it sent off to the lab. Well, it had arsenic in it. The cranberry juice bottle had arsenic in it. So then we knew that the wife and, and definitely the wife and uh, bookkeeper stayed there all the time. She practically lived out at the ranch because the wife and the bookkeeper were really good friends. They was even closer than sisters even. So we knew who the suspects were, was the, the bookkeeper and the wife. So 
And that went on for quite some time until two years later, they found a, a, a storage warehouse owner called and said, uh, we just uh, confiscated the uh, storage locker out here because the people didn't pay the rent. And we found some letters and stuff with Jerry Sternadel's name on it. So the cops went out there immediately, and when they were searching through the, the, the contents of the locker, they found in a plastic bag uh, with uh, letters to Jerry Sternadel dated the day that he died on June the 12th, 1990. In that particular uh, plastic bag was a bottle of arsenic poison. So they found the arsenic poison and the, the storage locker was rented by the bookkeeper. So that's when she was arrested. That's when she was arrested. And that's when she was tried. She was arrested and, and tried for the murder of Jerry Sternadale. And found guilty, but a quirk in the Texas law. Tell us about that. Well, she was found, the bookkeeper was found guilty of first-degree murder. Now, first-degree murder usually gets you the death pen- the penalty or 99 years in prison. But And we thought, okay, well, we've got her on first-degree murder. Now they're going to turn around and give her life in prison. Well, the next day, but when you're fighting the devil, you don't never know what he's going to throw at you. So the next, when they came up for sentencing for, de- for the bookkeeper, the jury turned around and gave her probation for murder, for first-degree murder. And everybody was, it was almost a riot out at the courthouse when she wound up with probation. Nobody could believe it. Everybody was, when we got through being mad, we were devastated. The, the, the uh, district attorney said this was a travesty of justice, and he wondered why he was even in the cr- criminal justice system when something like this happened. Then I found out uh, from how the, the jury was able to give her probation for first-degree murder was that there was a loophole in the Texas law that allowed uh, for probation to be given for murder, but that was written in the law for women that were battered by husbands or had to defend themselves. That's, that, was that, that was put in there for people like that, not for people like the bookkeeper, but they used it. So then we had to start fighting to trying to get the loophole in Texas law changed. So nobody else could get, could do a, a vicious murder like this and get away with probation. So somehow the judge let that slip by. Well, he didn't have any choice because it is in the law that uh, if they hadn't committed any other crimes and this was their first crime and the jury decides to give probation and it is allowed by law, he really couldn't do anything about it. So then you pursued her probation to make sure she was abiding by all the rules, and then uh, you finally had an opportunity. Well, I, I, I checked on her for eight years, and she had ten years probation. So I had followed her for, for eight years, checking on her probation. And they kept saying she's doing everything she's supposed to do. That's all the information they allowed to give you. And so I said, well, okay, but I kept checking on her. And then I found out she wasn't doing everything she was supposed to be doing. And I saw, uh, and not only that, she had, was committing other crimes. She was committing other felonies in, in the county that she moved to. So I got a hold of the district attorney and told him, you, uh, she's violating her probation and you need to do something about it. So he said, well, I'll check and see, and, and if she is violating the probation, well, then I'll have her, I'll uh, uh, file a revocation of her probation and put her in prison. And when he did find out that she was violating her probation, that's exactly what he did. And she wound up in prison, and she's still in prison. But the wife, Luann. The wife, Luann, uh, nothing has ever happened to her. She, she inherited a million-dollar estate. She inherited a $350,000 life insurance policy, and she's still scot-free. So your view of this, Debbie Baker is going to get out of jail eventually, and then her good friend uh, Luann has all this money and uh, assets. Do you think that's just part of the plan? 
Well, uh, she's Debbie Baker is supposed to be out of prison in 2013. That's when uh, uh, she's supposed to get out of prison. Uh, she came up for parole twice uh, already, but because there was such a, uh, uh, the public protest was so high that uh, usually when you're in prison, which I'm learning all kinds of stuff since we became victims, but usually in prison you come up for parole every six months, something like that. But because of so much protest, uh, public protest for letting her out, she wasn't allowed to come up for parole, but every four years. So she's come up for parole twice, and each time there's been an outcry, public outcry of protest. So uh, she won't, she can't even come up for uh, parole again until 2013, and that's when she's due to be released. We have about a minute left, Jeannie. Of, will justice ever be completely served, do you think? Well, I don't know. I, I know that it's our hope and our prayer that, that justice will finally be served. I know when you're fighting the devil, he's going to do everything to prevent justice, but I know that the Lord will always win out no matter what. If you have the faith and believe in him, he will make things win out. So I believe it will. So you feel that justice will be served as long as you keep fighting the devil every minute of every day, as you put it? That's that's what you have to do. Uh, not only me, but you, you, everybody has to fight the devil every minute of every day. And we can't let our guard down either, and we can't give up. So the story goes on. It hasn't finished yet. Even though you've published this book, the story is not finished yet. No, this is just the first segment. So it's going to get... It's gonna. As interesting as this part is, I think the next part's going to be even more interesting. And this book is filled with photos. It's absolutely filled with photos. It's got 49 photographs in, in a book, and I've been told that not any book that they know of has that many photos. So it documents all the players in this complete murder story. Yes, it does. It documents every one of them. Well, Jeannie, tell us how to get your book. Okay, well, I have a website uh, that people can go to. Uh, it doesn't have the www in it, but it's uh, JeannieWalkerBooks.com. And uh, I just did a video trailer, and that's on YouTube. People can look at uh, that on YouTube. It's uh, Look Up Fighting the Devil by Jeannie Walker. And then they can get it online, and it will be on bookstores probably in November or maybe before, but it's online. They can get it online, too. So it's all over the place. Well, thank you, Jeannie. Thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it's my pleasure. I sure appreciate it, and I hope everybody goes out and gets the book. That was Jeannie Walker. She is the author of her book, Fighting the Devil, a true story of consuming passion, deadly poison, and murder iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.